I'm George Anderson, the senior minister here at Second Presbyterian. Preaching today is Dr. Ben Witherington III, who is here in Roanoke to give the 2022 Edmonds Lectures here in this sanctuary tonight and tomorrow night at 7 p.m. I am excited that we will have the chance to have one of the most celebrated New Testament scholars help us understand the uniqueness of Christ and his most unique disciple. Dr. Witherington has graduate degrees from Gordon Cornwell and Durham University in England, but most importantly, he went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill that has a men's basketball team ranked number one preseason. <laughs> Dr. Witherington is ordained as an elder in the United Methodist Church and teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. He has published many books and articles and travels around the world giving talks. But today and tomorrow, he is here with us. I'm grateful to Carol Widmeyer, Ben's lifelong friend, for giving us an inside track and getting him here. Ben, we're grateful you're here and welcome. Let us worship God. Good morning. Let us pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen and amen. Our scripture for this morning is from 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I don't make your life like the life of one of those prophets by tomorrow. And Elijah was afraid. He got up and fled for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. And he asked that he might die. It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Get up, eat, otherwise the journey you're about to take will be too much for you. So he got up, he ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food Forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. And at that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. But those Israelites have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. God said, 
Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting the mountain and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a conflagration, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then there came that voice to him again, saying, What in the world are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I'll have you know I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, but those Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. And you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat of Abel Maholah, as a prophet in your place. And whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet, I have 7,000 in Israel, all of whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of God for the people of God. There's a wonderful character that has occurred in the comic strips for a long time, 80s, 90s, into the 21st century. His name is Ziggy. I really like Ziggy. He's kind of a son of Charlie Brown in some ways. He's vertically challenged. He's very short. He's bald. And the thing about him is he has an interesting perspective on the world. This particular Ziggy Strip, he's looking out the window of his condo because he lives in a high-rise in a big metropolitan city. The sun's coming up over the sky, uh, skyscrapers. His little, even smaller dog is standing behind him. He sees all the traffic coming and going, people on the sidewalks, taxis going by, major trucks going by. And he turns to his little dog and says, well, it looks like it's you and me against the world, and I think we're going to get creamed. <laughs> this is precisely the position that Elijah felt he was in at the beginning of our story for this morning. Elijah, though he was no loser, indeed, who had just had a major victory over the prophets of Baal, read 1 Kings 18, was in a tense situation. He had been summoned by Queen Jezebel, an ardent supporter of those prophets of Baal. When I was growing up in North Carolina, everybody told me it was Baal. It's not. It's Baal. He's the Canaanite storm god and fertility deity. And so Queen Jezebel had threatened his life, and Elijah knew she was deadly in earnest about this, and he became unnerved. One minute he's bold and serving the Lord and has a great victory over the prophets of Baal. The next moment, not faith-based thinking, but fear-based thinking. 
rules his life, and he runs away. He flees all the way through Israel, all the way through Judah to the southernmost city in Judah, Beersheba. He leaves his servant there. He goes out into the desert in the Maktesh Ramon and asks to die. He goes so far away from Ahab and Jezebel that he wants to be in a place where he will not be disgraced or dishonored when he decides it's time for him to die. Sometimes, though I don't think that Elijah was looking for answers at that point, sometimes it's good to get away from the source of the problem and step back in space or time or both to get a better perspective. Cahill Gibran puts it this way, the mountain to the climber is clearer from the plain. So the text says he fled all the way from northern Israel through Judea to Beersheba and beyond. He just wanted to get away. He wanted to get very far away. But what did he pray for? Elijah was so despondent and depressed. He said to God, in essence, there's no profit in being a true prophet. Take my life, Lord. I don't deserve to live any longer than my ancestors. In essence, he said, Lord, it's you and me against the world, and I think we're going to get creamed. What had so depressed Elijah that he wanted to lay down and die? He tells us very directly, I'll have you know, God, have you ever shook your finger at God? I'll have you know, I've been very zealous for the Lord, and yet the Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death. I alone am left. Now they're trying to kill me. How often have any of us been in a somewhat similar situation? Or at least we felt we were, at the end of our ropes, ready to give up, maybe ready to lay down and die. The prophet Elijah sits under a broom tree in the desert and laments, there are no converts. My ministry is a total failure. And he has to die. Contrast him with Jonah, who goes to Nineveh, puts his hand over his mouth and says, repent, repent. And all of Nineveh repents. And he goes and sits under his vine and says, I just knew this was going to happen. And he's not best pleased either. It's a wonder how God puts up with his messengers. We're not pleased when things go wrong, and we are also not pleased when things go right. Despite his depression, however, Elijah did the right thing. Notice this. He prayed to God in his hour of need. One wonders how many suicides could have been averted if when someone came to the end of their ropes, instead of making a noose, they put themselves in the hands of the Almighty. Elijah doesn't attempt to end his life. He places it back in the hands of God. And it's interesting that at this juncture, at this low point, this nadir in his life, Elijah is showing all the classic signs of depression. He's not taking good care of himself. He's worn himself out with fear. He's running away. He's failing to eat. At this point of both physical, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion, he prays to God, and instead of dying, he falls asleep. Shakespeare once put it this way, sleep 
that knits up the raveled sleeve of care. Sleep, often the best medicine. But what happened next? One of the most fallacious things anybody could say about God is, well, sometimes God just doesn't answer prayers. You ever heard that one? Wrong. This is totally false. The assumption behind the statement is that only a yes or an affirmative answer is an answer to prayer. Wrong. In fact, no is just as much an answer to prayer as yes, as is not now or not with this person or not at this time. It's characteristic of the biblical God, however, that he answers our prayers, not always at the point of our request, because frankly, lots of the time, we don't know what's best for us. Rather, he answers our prayers at the point of our needs. Let me say that one more time. He doesn't necessarily answer your prayers at the point of your request. He answers at the point of your needs because God knows better than we do what's best for us. The story is told of a little girl who lived in Cleveland, Ohio, in a high-rise condo with her parents, and she wanted more than anything else in the world a pony. I don't mean my little pony. I mean a real pony. And her parents were smart enough not to say, that's ridiculous. We don't have any place to put a pony here in this house. So one day before Christmas, she was going to Lorraine to visit with her grandmother, and they were making chocolate chip cookies, and grandmother sort of gingerly asked her, well, what are you praying for for Christmas? And the little girl says, oh, I'm asking God for a pony. And the grandmother was wise, too. She said, well, when you come back in January to see me again, you tell me how that turned out. So Christmas comes, there's no live pony under the Christmas tree, January rolls around, she goes back to see Grandma, and Grandma gradually brings up the subject and says, well, did God answer your prayer about the pony? And the little girl, her eyes got wide and was incredulous and said, of course, Granny, he said no. <laughs> no is, after all, an answer to prayer. And no is the answer that God gave Elijah in regard to when he asked God to take away his life. The Lord knew that the real answer to Elijah's problems and his depression was not to take away his life, but to strengthen it, to give him sustenance, support, assurance. These sorts of things can get a person back on the right track. God administered to Elijah at the point of his need, not at the point of his request, just as he does with us. So we are told that, first of all, one of God's angels had provided him with physical sustenance and drink, reviving him physically. And then finally, when he got all the way to Mount Horeb, a.k.a. Mount Sinai, it's the same place. It's the place where God offered the first pharmaceutical prescription. He told Moses, take two tablets and call me in the morning. <laughs> Remember that one? It's at Mount Sinai that God ministers to the spiritual part of Elijah's problem. God knew that however good the gift of physical food was, it's not enough to minister to the heart of Elijah. He must go deeper to heal the hurts of the heart. 
And notice that God didn't stop ministering to Elijah till he got him totally ready to go again, until he truly revived and got him ready to go back to his ministry in the north. I will say to you today, Second Presbyterian Church, I know that you and my church and many other churches have gone through a lot in the pandemic, but he's not in any wise finished with any of us, and he's not going to stop working in this place until we get to the place where he wants us to be. The shalom, the peace, the healing that comes from God involves the well-being of the whole person. The whole person of Elijah had to be ministered to. So we are told that when he got to Mount Horeb, a still small voice said, Eliyah. His name is Eliyah, which means Yahweh is my God. That's his name. He's named Yahweh is my God, and yet he's asking Yahweh, who is his God, to take away his life. And God's not going to do that. God's not going to do that. In fact, what we see here is God wants Elijah to unburden his heart. I mean, God already knows what the problem is. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, you're not telling God anything he doesn't already know when you pray. Of course not. God's not sitting up there in heaven saying, angels, come look at this prayer. I haven't thought of that. We should do something about that. This is not how God operates. But he wants Elijah to unburden his heart. So again, he's afraid that his ministry is a failure. He's afraid of dying a pointless death at the hands of those that should have respected and listened to and followed him. He was afraid of public shaming, and he was feeling as if he had accomplished nothing with the Israelites. And after he had unburdened his soul, he was finally ready to hear God's solution to the problem. You see, sometimes we don't hear the still, small voice because we're too busy complaining to hear the voice. And sometimes we do not hear the still, small voice because we don't really admit that there's something wrong and we're in denial about the problem. And sometimes there are actually people in the church who prefer sympathy for their problems because it brings them comfort and consolation from others Rather than a solution to the problem, they're having a pity party, and they want somebody to come help them with that. There follows one of the great passages in all the Old Testament, fantastic passage. Elijah goes out on the lip of the cave, wraps his mantle around his face, and we are told, and there was a mighty wind as God passed by, but God was not in the wind, and his will couldn't be discerned in the wind. And there was an earthquake, a great earthquake, and God's will and presence could not be discerned from the earthquake. There was a conflagration, a fire on the mountain, and yet God was not in the fire, says the Hebrew text. And finally, there was a still small voice, a bare whisper like a breath of wind that said, Elijah, why are you here? 
Are we listening for that still small voice? Or are we so busy texting and tweeting and emailing and sending stuff that we don't have the stillness to hear God's answers to the problem? Some time ago, I got a letter in the mail from Time Magazine. You know how these form letters used to go where they would type in your name ever so often because it made it look more personal even though it's a form letter? Well, Time's computers read my name, Dr. Ben Witherington III, and that was too much to squeeze in 0.9 font empty spaces for places in this letter. And so, and so, the letter read, and I kid you not, I still have it, Dear Dr. Third, <laughs> we know you're one of the most important persons in your neighborhood. Surely, Dr. Third, you wish to keep abreast of foreign and domestic affairs by renewing your subscription. So we're making this personal appeal, Dr. Third. Please sign your name at the bottom of this page, tear it off, put it in the self-addressed stamped envelope, send it back to us, and you will continue to get week after week of our Great American News Weekly, yours sincerely, Time Incorporated. I was tempted to write them back, Dear Inc. <laughs> you see, when the world tries to be personal, it treats persons like numbers and things. Have you been there before? Just give me your social security number. Mm -hmm. But when God is personal, he calls you by name. Elijah what are you doing here? Remember in the garden when Jesus rose from the dead and Mary Magdalene saw the empty tomb and heard a voice outside the tomb say, woman, why are you crying? And she thought he was the gardener who had moved Jesus' body. And then Jesus said, Mary. The same Jesus who in the same gospel said, I know my sheep, and I call them by name. God is nothing in his relationship to us, if not personal. So, after all of this, God reassured Elijah by saying, you are not alone. Go back, go back, go back where you came from. I'll get you some assistant ministers. I'll get you an administrative secretary. I'll get you uh, somebody else you can anoint as king to help you with the political problems you've got up there. But you should know that you're really wrong about Israel. There's 7,000 faithful souls up there who have not bowed down to the gods of this world and not kissed the statue of Baal. One of my favorite preachers in the Protestant tradition is Fred Craddock of Blessed Memory Now. Fred tells the story of one day when he was sitting in his office at Emory University at Candler School of Theology, and there came a on his door bright and early in the morning when he hadn't even finished his coffee. He gradually got up, went to the door, and opened the door, and there was this bedraggled young college student, couldn't be more about that, 17, 18 years of age, and she looked totally miserable. And so he said, come on in, come on in. Tell me what's bothering you. Because he could tell something was bothering her. She proceeded to tell him this story. 
well, Dr. Craddock, I wasn't doing so well in school. And then on top of that, my boyfriend left me and I figured that was the end. So I went out to the river, to the train trestle, and I was going to jump off the train trestle into that shallow river out there. And I got up on top of the train trestle and I was ready to jump. And then in my heart, I heard, be still and know that I am God. And that scared the living daylights out of me. And I backed off and got off the edge and the precipice and went back to the dorm and spent a miserable night rolling around in bed and figured somebody would help me understand this, so I came to you. Dr. Craddock said, well, that's quite a story. Let's see if we can find an answer. Are you a church girl? No, sir. Do you go to church at all? No, sir, I really don't. But when I was little, about five, my grandmother took me to this thing called Vacation Bible School. Uh-huh says Fred, and what did you do when you were there? All I remember, she said, is they gave me these little silver scissors and piece of paper, and we cut out strips of paper, and we wrote words on the strips of paper, and then we were asked to memorize the words that were on the strips of paper. Uh-huh, says Dr. Craddock. I'm willing to bet that what you wrote down was, be still and know that I am God. And those words lodged in your heart, the very word of God lodged in your heart, and it just saved your life. It's not the world of God that's going to save your life. And you really can't analyze what God's will particularly is for you by judging all the pandemic and other things that have happened to us, even though insurance companies call all that stuff acts of God. Our text says no. God could not be found in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. We live in a fallen world where bad things happen to good people, even God's people. It happens to. If you want to know God's will for your life, you need to know the word of God. And if it's lodged in your heart, it can even save your life. So I'm asking you this morning, are you still enough to hear the still, small voice? Are you brave enough to accept his answer when it might be no? And are you true enough to continue to seek the Lord even when you don't, on that spot, get an answer? God will keep coming for you. He's the hound of heaven, and he's not ever going to give up on you. And all God's people said, Amen. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.